Howdy folks, today we're diving into the fascinating world of product photography with a true industry legend, one of the best in the business, right after this. Welcome to Camera Shake, where we bring you the insider scoop on all things photography and videography, giving you a unique opportunity to stay ahead of the curve. We've spent literally hundreds of hours interviewing some of the most renowned photographers of our time, giving you access to knowledge and expertise that's not available anywhere else. As always, I'm your host, Kirsten Nutz, and if you enjoy this content, you can support us by buying us a coffee over on buymeacoffee.com forward slash camera shake to help us create more exciting episodes for you. Your support really does make a difference. But without further ado, let's give it up for today's special guest, the global ambassador for Hasselblad and brown color, the educator, lighting genius, and a true maestro behind the lens. Give it up for none other than Carl Taylor himself. Carl, great to have you on the show. How's nice things? Nice to be here. Thank you. How are you doing? You're hailing from the beautiful uh, Channel Island of Guernsey, I believe. That's correct. Yeah, that's where I was born, um, where I grew up, and then I left the island in the mid early 90s actually to pursue a career in photojournalism traveled around the world a lot for several years and then came back and then went away again for several more years and then finally settled back here and opened my own studio uh 1998 i think it was and then continued working from here and london and europe and what have you from there yeah, I wanted to ask you about about your, um, you know, your, your background in photojournalism because I came across it fairly recently. I thought, like, that's not the same. That is not. Oh, yes, it is. <laughs> you were literally, you were literally traveling like the jungles of Borneo, I believe, or something. Like yeah, that. yeah. Um, so when I was younger, um, some of my introduction to photography was through National Geographic magazine. That's where I really sort of developed an interest in photography and images because I used to get this magazine or my family got this magazine I used to read it look at the images and think well this is incredible so I had this sort of desire to seek out culture and create similar images but I didn't really as a kid have any idea how difficult that was actually to achieve um, so anyway it took a long time and then by my early 20s I decided to go traveling with my cameras and see what I could do uh, created some really nice images on the first trip, a couple of articles, not not for National Geographic, of course, but a few uh, bits and pieces. And then that gave me an insight into the complexity of it and how much more research you really need to do to uh, achieve a credible article. So the following time I went was for a few years to Southeast Asia, mostly in Indonesia, and I documented different remote regions and remote people and groups and then uh, a lot of those articles were successful published in different magazines and newspapers and I did that for a few years and then uh, to be honest I got a little bit tired with it because it was hard work and it wasn't very good pay uh, as a photographer because every shoot that you did or trip that you did whatever you earned from that you had to then sort of reinvest to do the next one and the next one so you were living a very hand-to-mouth existence um, and I ended up actually in Australia 
And then um, I was looking for work and I managed to get a job as a photography assistant in a big commercial studio. Nothing that I'd done before because it was all lighting and, you know, technical large format cameras and all that. So completely out of my comfort zone. But I really enjoyed that um, process of lighting and learning lighting and manipulating lighting. And it was from that experience that I decided, right, this is the direction I want my photography to take. And, and that's when I moved away from trying to become a photojournalist. And it's, it's really that obsession almost with lighting that's very evident in your later work, in your product photography work, but also, of course, in your portrait photography work. Um, yeah. How did you... How did you learn how to light? Like, what was your pathway into learning how to light? Because as a photojournalist, presumably you're predominantly using available light. Exactly. Obviously. I, I had no experience of lighting at all uh, in the early days other than natural light, as you say, or some small amounts of speed lights and, and fill-in flash. When I worked in a big commercial studio, it opened my eyes to how complicated and complex lighting could be in terms of controlling it and the tools that were available to control it, such as Fresnel lenses, parabolic modifiers, spotlights, honeycomb grids, big broad scrims, soft banks for car photography, all sorts of stuff. And I, I just was totally unaware of the complexity of lighting and what that brought to an image. I mean, we all knew that nice light, you know, a lovely sunset or lovely dappled light through a tree could make a nice image. But I don't think many photographers, I don't think most photographers in general, I'm talking amateur photographers, are really aware of why it provides, um, you know, a, a great emotional experience to the image. So I became fascinated with light. And I suppose in answer to your question as to why I came to be known as a sort of lighting specialist is because I really made an effort to study light beyond the normal hard light, soft light, soft boxes, spotlights. I took it another level and started looking more at the physics and the science behind light and how light works, how it interacts, how um, it bounces, it refracts things like inverse square law, um, everything to do with polarization of light. I started really to study more on the science side and also in more recent years, more on the neuroscience side of how we react to images based on human um, evolutionary um uh, well, ev evolutionary for our own sort of um, protection, if you like. So a lot of the way we perceive images and faces and people and diagonal lines or horizontal lines is all to do with evolutionary process, all to do with um, preservation of ourselves as a species, you know, that whole uh, flight threat run thing. And it fascinated me then that on top of all of the science of light, there's this whole science on how humans basically digest images visually. Um, and then I took those two things and combined them. And that's how and why I decide to create my images the way I do today.
that's a super interesting angle actually um, to look at how we you know how we react on a really on a sort of you know biological level, whatever you yeah. want to call it. Yeah, um, exactly. To particular to particular uh, types of light and the way that light falls, you know, uh, I'm guessing the impact that shadows have on, you know, we see it in, in filmmaking very often where light is is used to underline, you know, almost like psychological undertones, you know, yeah. in a particular scene, and it's it becomes part of the storytelling process. Yes, totally. And 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 you you mentioned shadows there, which is a great point because shadows are used quite significantly in a lot of my work to different types of shadows, different density of shadows, different sharpness of shadows. And each type of shadow has a way of conveying an emotion that can be either ominous or it can be happy or it can be more dynamic. And as you mentioned there, cinematographers, the very best cinematographers know this inside out. And you take some of the most dramatically well-lit films um, such as the film Seven with Brad Pitt and uh, Morgan Freeman. You know, the lighting, when you study the lighting throughout that film, it's incredible. And you see how the cinematographer has applied lighting to invoke a feeling, a mood, an emotion that carries you through the film. And um, I've, I've used examples in certain presentations I've given. I mean, even in um, Kubrick's Space Odyssey 2001, in the final scenes where you've got the astronaut in the room and everything is lighting up from the floor upwards which gives a very horror-like feeling because the light is unnatural it's coming from underneath instead of coming from above and that's all intentional to to you know invoke those emotions of bizarre strangeness if you like to the atmosphere in the scene and 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 the very best cinematographers know this and and you know some photographers know this as well. Many photographers do know this. Some, you know, I'm friends with and work with, and it's that application of that knowledge into your images in a studio environment that can dramatically enhance or invoke the mood that you're trying to convey. And it's very slight tweaks to the lighting as well. So, for example, in some of my fashion and beauty images, I can have the same model, the same outfit, the same lighting position. And all I have to do is change the density of the light in the shadows via global illumination fill, and I can lighten the mood of the shot without actually changing anything other than the density of the shadows. And it's really interesting at what point the density of the shadows gives an atmosphere of edgy, more ominous feel compared to a lighter, fresher feel. And again, what's interesting about that, though, is not just that it does it, but why does it do it? And what is it about human perception that makes us perceive it that way? So that became something that I started to study uh, several years ago more in depth. A uh, fellow friend of mine and photographer called Tim Flack, um, incredible animal portrait photographer, um, he uh, actually put me on to many of, the, many of these com concepts about 10 years ago. Uh, and how he uses it in his work. And then, um, you know, I've kind of done further research on that since as well. You know, I've always been fascinated by um, by cinematic lighting. By cinematic lighting, what I mean is is the use of lighting as a storytelling device. You know, for instance, where we're using, you know, shadows or, or a particular 
style of lighting to maybe display, you know, the duality of a character where we're not quite entirely certain, but we know there's a hidden, like a hidden dimension to this, to this character that we may not yet be aware of at this point in the film, but it may become ominously clear later on. And it's it's this, it's this sort of um, hinting at, at, at actions that will, you know, that are dawning on us. This sort of thing that I've always found super interesting. Um, and actually, yeah, I, I they love use, how... they can they can use that in two ways because sometimes what they'll do is they can if it's if it's a character that they're trying to develop in a film where they don't really want you to know whether they're sort of good or bad, they can light them differently in the early parts of the film so that oh is this going that way or is it going that way? And and most viewers. You know, most of the audience, especially those that are not photographers or involved in understanding light in any way, it's subliminal. They don't even know it's happening, but it's happening on a neurological level to them. And it's setting that tone and that emotion and that feeling in them without them even realizing why. Um, And that's fascinating. Yeah, it it absolutely is. So my wife went to film school. Uh, she's a teacher oh. now, but she went to film school. But her specialty was script writing. That's what she focused on. Um, she, by her own admission, she used to hate the days when she had to be in a studio and like move lights around. That <laughs> wasn't her bag. But uh, so she's always focused on the you know on, on the script um, writing portion of the movie. So you know, we always have these. Uh, virtually almost every night we have these conversations where I'd be like, "Oh wow, the lighting is incredible," and you know, just uh, you know. The color, the color grading is fantastic. And she goes like, yeah, but the, but the dialogue is shit. Great. <laughs> well, that, that's it. I mean, obviously we've all got our own little niche fields that, you know, we, we recognize one way or the other. And that's the thing that's interesting in a really good film. Even if it has amazing lighting, if the dialogue is crap, it, it becomes a bad film. It has to have all the elements work for total success, you know, from the aesthetics of composition, the aesthetics of lighting, the uh, dialogue, um, you know, the script, the, everything, the narrative, the whole thing has to gel together. And when that all works together, then 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 it's a real success. And I also love how that's now sort of moved into television because, um, you know, over the last, I don't know, maybe over the last five, six, seven years or something, you know, television productions have become much more... Um, astute when it comes to when yeah. it comes to lighting and color grading. It's, it's like the, it, often you watch a TV series and it, it looks like you're watching a nine-hour movie, you know? Yeah, it's, absolutely. It's just... I mean, we've seen great examples of that recently on Netflix with The Queen's Gambit. It was so well filmed, so well Fantastic. lit, the atmosphere. Another one I watched recently on Apple TV was um, Lessons in Chemistry. It was so divinely executed in terms of composition, lighting, grading, storytelling, um, and yeah, it becomes like a nine hour movie and people have really latched onto that rather than just individual films. People seem to become quite absorbed into these longer running series. Um, I personally, I like this, the, the, the single series ones. I find sometimes with a lot of television, if they get a hit with something, they try and drag it out with season two, season three, so, you know, and then it gets a little bit uh, lethargic. But um, but anyway. So, how did you uh, how did you arrive at at product photography? You mentioned because there's one thing I want to ask you. Really, was well, many things I want to ask you, but here's one thing I was really interested in. Um, now, 
you're on the island of Guernsey, which is in the English Channel. It's a yep. relatively small island. Very Fairly, small. I mean, very small. Uh, very beautiful. I haven't been there, but I've been on I've been to Jersey a long time ago. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's always been always similar. been my ambitions. Yeah, it's similar. It's always been my ambitions actually to visit uh, Guernsey. I will I will manage to do that at some point. But um, it's a beautiful little place. It's a little island in the English Channel, um, off the French coast, or between the French and the British. Yeah, it's coast. closer to France actually. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you're you're setting up a studio specializing in product photography. How does that work? Is that is this a hindrance being on a small island, or or does it have advantages? It, it was at, at one stage. Um, so I mean, essentially, if we we wind back clock to when I decided to come back to Guernsey and open my own studio, you know, this was in 1998, I think it was. Um, I'm 54 years old now, so you know, I've been in the business a long time. Back then in 1998, I wasn't striving to be shooting for big budget ad campaigns or for big advertising agencies. I just had aspirations of running a business in my local area and making a decent living. Um, and at the time when um, when I did set up my studio here, the reason for that was because I felt there was a gap in the market for uh, product and commercial photography. It wasn't solely product photography. Um, I was operating in general commercial photography from architecture, tourism, restaurants, uh, um, food photography, product photography, you know, the general sort of more broader commercial work than most commercial photographers find themselves doing for business to business stuff. And um, Guernsey and the Channel Islands was quite a thriving little area because we have our own um, offshore tax status, which does attract a lot of businesses into this air, into this location, into these islands. A lot of that is in the finance industry uh, with some of the world's big banks here. And um, though that that also led to a lot of um, commercial commissions for those banks where you're doing imagery for annual reports or for brochures or for stuff to do with that whole finance industry. And that was, um, you know, for, for example, I've shot for some of the, the big banks and some of the more obscure international banks where you've been given a campaign brief where they need a series of images to, to, to um, you know, to express a, a, a type of theme of growth or you know that sort of typical finance thing so um although it's a it's a small sort of jurisdiction there was actually quite a large number of businesses here for the size of the place and then when you add on that that hospitality and tourism was a big part of the industry growing uh, to some extent as well some manufacturing there was also a few big electronics companies based here for tax reasons that I used to shoot for as well. Um, there were some drinks companies that had subsidiaries here as well uh, for the European market that I shot for. So although you know demographically it was small, there was actually quite a lot of activity here. Um, and I did, and I felt when I came back from Australia and my experience in Australia that I had the skills to open a studio and service those commercial requirements that I didn't think were being serviced very well by any local photographers 
And in actual fact, some of the work was being outsourced to London to get the standard they needed. So I thought, well, if I can open a studio here and service a mixed, broader variety of commercial work, that might work for me and I could make a decent living. And it did. And, um, you know, I, I ran a, a busy studio for many years. I employed a couple of staff from time to time as well. Um, and then just from that, you know, your, your, your skills as a photographer grow and then you meet people and you might win a job from an agency that you work with that have got another office in Manchester or another one in London or wherever. And then that leads to connections and networking. And, you know, over time, you, you just start to get either known or you bring in jobs from other companies. Uh, and then I started doing work uh, more in, in the UK as well. Hey, let me just jump in real quick to tell you about the amazing sponsor of this episode, Platypod. Platypod offers innovative camera support systems designed to unleash your creativity. With their stable, versatile, and portable solutions, you can capture stunning shots like never before. And I'm not just saying that. As the host of the Camera Shake podcast, I can personally vouch for Platypod's incredible products. They've become an integral part of the show. In fact, I'm surrounded by various Platypod products holding up lights, cameras, microphones, and so on. It's really helped to transform the way I make the show and the way I shoot at home, in the studio, and on location. But don't just take my word for it. Explore Platypod's website at www.platypod.com to discover their range of products, including the Platypod Extreme, Platyball Tripod Heads, and the brand new handle, of course. Make sure to follow Platypod on Instagram and Facebook at Platypod Tripods for exclusive updates, tips, and giveaways. By choosing Platypod, you're not only investing in your photography, but you're also supporting the Camera Shake Photography Podcast. Thanks again to Platypod, our amazing sponsor. Platypod, where innovation never sleeps. And we're going to get to some of your images um, in a minute, because I want to take a few of your images and, um, and just get the background on those, which will be very interesting, uh, interesting for you know, our listeners. And in particular, of course, if you are, I'm just saying this, if you are listening to the audio version of this podcast, be reminded that there is a fully fledged, fully technicolored version over on YouTube. Um, and uh, with with something like this, where we're talking about particular images, I highly recommend that you check it out because you can see the image as we're talking about it. Um, and I will fly them in um, into the video version, of course. Um, alternatively, if if you insist on listening to the audio version of this, you can always head over to our uh, Facebook group uh, over on the Facebook Camera Shake Podcast. Um, I will put the images up there, and then you know you can you can uh, marvel at them there, of course. But before we do that, um, I want to get into your uh, education side of the of the business as well, because I think most people will know you um, through YouTube and through the education side of things. So, at what point did you decide to 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 set up a, uh, I would say, a, a video-based education arm to your business? Because you've been, I've got to admit that you were probably one of the first education providers that I came across when I first got into stills photography, which would have been about uh, 12 years ago, I believe, something yeah, like that. Yeah, that would be about 2013. Right. Um, so that was... Uh... Not an accident as such. Um, so again, as a business person, you know, running a commercial studio, um, digital photography came around quite rapidly in 2002, 3, 4, where 
the mainstream brands Canon, Nikon started, you know, producing and introducing digital cameras, usually only around 12 megapixels back then. But what happened was there was this explosion in interest in photography that had gone from, you know, photography being a, a, a popular hobby for many people with film cameras and SLR cameras. But then as soon as digital SLR cameras came out and people realized they could see the picture instantly, take the picture instantly, correct their mistakes in, instantly, it exploded. And, you know, we saw this huge explosion from about 2006, seven, I think it was, onwards. Um, and I'd already switched to digital in 2005 when I went to Hasselblad to the my first camera was the h1 Hasselblad it actually had the Imicon which was the Danish uh, digital sensor manufacturer at the time that produced the digital backs that went on the h1 and that was my transition into digital because clients were starting to demand it more and I'd always been a film guy 5x4 Mamiya 6x7s 35mm film and then what happened was with this explosion in digital photography and interest, I just used to get loads of people locally saying, oh, I, I need, you know, I want to know how to do photography. I want to know how to understand all this digital and the digital concepts and everything about shooting the images, transferring the images and blah, blah, blah. And I just saw an opportunity um, to run a few workshops um, to see, you know, how that went and um, how popular they would be. And they just went ballistic. I, I, I literally had my studio filled on, uh, on several evenings with a huge class of people um, attending these courses. And, and I thought, oh, this is interesting. And financially, I've got this extra source of revenue coming in. <laughs> and I thought, well, this is, this is really weird because this is just on a local level this was happening. And I thought, I wonder if we can expand on this because I'm I'm also quite entrepreneurial in, you know, business wanting to try and do things. So I approached some colleagues of mine that were in media and worked in uh, filming and, and media and websites. And I said, look, is there a way we can scale this up where we could potentially bring photography education to the masses? And they said, yeah, we could do it via DVD. We could do it with a website that sells DVDs and blah, blah, boom. And we sat down, we had a meeting. Um, and those two guys that were on that business are still my directors in visual education today, uh, Tim and John. And we formed this new company, um, this education, which at the time I think was called Carl Taylor Masterclass, then became Carl Taylor Education, has now become visual education. And I'll explain why on that shortly. But we decided to go with DVD. So we started off with an introduction to photography DVD, then an advanced DSLR techniques. And then, and then within a year we had five or six DVDs. And we also put a lot of content on YouTube as promotion for the DVD, sort of free little lessons, free little classes and tips and things. And our YouTube channel grew quite significantly, quite quickly because a lot of people were looking for information on learning photography and obviously YouTube's a great resource and that led them 
to more information that was available in our DVDs. DVDs started selling really, really well all over the world. We had shops selling them around the world. We had different distributors, etc. And it just grew from there. And that was back in 2008. So like you say, 13, 14 years ago, whatever that was now. And then obviously technology changed. DVDs kind of disappeared and we moved into downloads. Most of the audience found that downloads were expensive compared to having a physical DVD. So we then changed the model to try and make it more affordable but we needed a mass market. So we switched to a membership model, which we've got now where you pay a low monthly fee and you access everything all included that we've ever produced and we continue to produce each month. Um, and that's where we are now. And the brand name changed from Carl Taylor to visual education, because obviously my name's always been synonymous with photography and lighting. But now the world has changed and, and it's not just photography anymore. Most photographers that are going to be successful tomorrow are what I would call visual artists. They need to be skilled in, you know, multiple formats from, like you mentioned before, potentially AI in the future. Um, some elements of CGI, some elements of filmmaking and videography has certainly crossed over into photography some time ago. And some of my colleagues and, and better known photographers now also call themselves directors or filmmakers as well. And they're involved in television commercials as well as stills photography. So we've seen this amalgamation of various visual arts come together, which I think is going to be what the future holds for most photographers in having to supply multiple services, photography, video at the very least, potentially some CGI, potentially some AI, et cetera, et cetera. So our platform couldn't be Carl Taylor anymore. It needed to diversify because we also have more instructors that are experts in their, in their field coming in to teach classes on things that I'm not an expert on. And I, I, I fully agree with you. Um, I mean, even from my perspective, you know, I've experienced how important diversification has become um, over the last few years. Yeah, in particular, I mean, for me, it was really, you know, COVID was the um, was the thing that forced me into diversifying because, you know, previous or prior to uh, to COVID or to the pandemic, um, I used to focus predominantly on shooting um, conferences, you know, large events for right. large uh, global um, corporations. So my clients were large international corporations, um, and I would go and you know, fly wherever in the world to photograph a conference. Um, and that was all fine until COVID hit and the entire conference sector basically was dead in the water. You know, and it's, it's, uh, it was literally one day, I remember one day where my phone didn't stop ringing and it was just one cancellation after the other. And, you know, before I knew it, it was the end yep. of March 2020 and I, I looked at my diary and it was like, oh, right, I've got nothing to do for the rest of 2020. <laughs> That's not cool. Yeah. You know, yeah. and immediately you start to realize that actually, you know, or I realized very harshly that my business was just built on one pillar. That was one event in the world that happened that basically wiped all of that out. Um, right. And it right. meant, you know, it meant for me, it meant a number of things, but predominantly meant diversifying. And uh, the way I attacked that immediately was, you know, I was looking at, okay, well, you know, I need to look at smaller businesses and, and more local businesses because that'll make some hay. Um, 
at, at the time, it actually struck me. You know, I'd moved to this to this uh, place just outside of on this, the suburbs of London called Rickmansworth, and I, I sort of married into this town, <laughs> as they say. <laughs> you know, and and I didn't know anybody. I literally didn't know anybody, and it didn't matter prior to COVID because my clients were, like I said, international corporates. They had the headquarters wherever in the world. They were, you know, so it didn't matter. But all of a sudden, when COVID hit, it it started to matter. And that, so that was one thing. The other thing, of course, then was, well, you know, what else am I going to do? Oh, I know. Let's do a podcast. And, and that's really, you know, that's where the origin of this podcast lies, is with the beginning of COVID. And, and uh, at the time, I started with a friend of mine. Um, and we both, he was a filmmaker, and we both thought, well, actually, we're bored out of our heads. You know, got nothing to do. Um, let's do something creative. Um, and that's that was... That was the beginning of, of the Camera Shake podcast, and here we are 184 episodes later. Amazing. But, and, you know, and of course what that meant, um, I mean, we started as a podcast, but we, because we were both, you know, into photography and filmmaking, it, it was just natural to film the whole thing and sort of almost like approach it. I mean, I approached it as a video first, in a sense, um, although the, the largest, the vast majority of the audience are actually on audio, but I actually filmed the whole thing and then I use the audio version of that. That becomes the audio podcast. Um, but I still think of it like, like a visual artist first. I film the thing. That's that's how I set it up, and that's how I edit it. Um, right. And then it becomes it becomes an audio thing afterwards. But it just means that you know all of a sudden you get to really move from stills into filmmaking. And the other thing that's happened on top of that, just to sort of you know uh, finish that point, is that as far as my business is concerned. It's it's very very heavily leaned into video production as well, and that's really something that I didn't do prior to COVID. So yeah. everything that I do as a photographer has, has really changed yeah. since then, and and it's yeah. and it's interesting though, isn't it? That you know sometimes adversity pushes us into directions that we had no intention of going, but sometimes work out for the better. Um, your situation has driven you into videography and video uh, skills that you would not have considered uh, before. And um, it, it is often these situations. I mean, going back to 2008, when we started doing um, photography education, one of the reasons we actually were able to do it was because back in 2008, where there was the big economic crash, and that big economic crash actually meant I had a significant reduction in my normal commercial photography because at the time with that global financial crisis, clients were going, oh, hold on a minute, advertising budgets need to be cut. We need to stop this and stop that. They didn't lose all my work, but there was definitely a reduction in the amount of work that was being commissioned. And actually that particular time was when we were starting the education business but typically you're always too busy to get it done but then all of a sudden because of that global financial crash we we had this extra time and we were like oh okay well let's put this time to good use and let's push this project forwards more now maybe if that economic crash never happened maybe we would never have given this education business the push that it needed to get it going so you know as i say sometimes adversity can be a, a driver for um other successes and that's that's really practically identically what what happened uh when, mm. it, when it comes to this this podcast because i remember you know my friend nick and i were talking we were doing projects together and 
you know, occasionally, I think maybe like six months before the pandemic, you know, we're just bouncing the idea around. It was it was more like, oh, yeah, you know, I've been listening to this this podcast. Wouldn't it be cool if we did a podcast? Because we talk about photography and, you know, gear and lenses and techniques and stuff all the time anyhow. So, you know, there must be other nerds out there that really? might be interested in that sort of thing. Anyway, so, you know, and then, but, you know, as you say, life goes on, you know, you've got work to do, family, you know, a normal life carries on and and you kick the can down the road. You know, you think like, oh, it's a really good idea, but, you know, maybe at some point in the future. But it was exactly when, you know, when uh, the, the pandemic hit and it got to the point where, you know, I felt like I'd seen everything there was to 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 see on Netflix, you know, and I've done the, the Marvel Marathon several times over. And I was like, man, I just, it's like, <laughs> I've got to do something. It was at that point where I thought like, all right, okay, well, you know, that idea of, of, of setting up a podcast all of a sudden became like a really fun thing to do. And I remember the conversation I had with Nick on FaceTime at a time um, on a Friday, you know, and I said, do you remember this idea of, of doing a podcast? You know, how about, how about we do that? Because it keeps us doing stuff. And I remember just, you know, we we're both completely clueless thinking like, how do, like, how do podcasts work? Like, where do podcasts live? How does this whole thing actually well, function? Like, how do you get something that you record onto like Apple Podcasts or, or Google or whatever. Yeah, yep. um, and it was like a steep learning curve, but you know, and it's this typical thing, and I've talked about this on this podcast many times, but it's this typical thing where, you know, you, you think you have a good idea, then you start talking about it, then you come up against X amount of different obstacles and or hurdles, and you, you end up talking yourself out of a good idea, you know? Yeah. And then as I remember at some point, I just said, look, Nick, what are you doing on Monday at 4 p.m.? And he goes, well, nothing, you know, I'm stuck in my apartment and I can't go anywhere. So, you know, now I went, okay, well, that's when we're going to re record our first episode. We'll just have to figure it out between now and then. And, and we did knowing full well that it wasn't going to be our greatest work, <laughs> you know? but we just figured, you know, we'll just learn along yeah, the exactly. way. And... At least you, you force yourself to do something. It will evolve. If you, if you don't take the first step, you're not going to go anywhere. Exactly. Exactly. All right. So, uh, actually, before we get into um, some of your images, uh, just out of interest, how did the uh, pandemic affect your business over in Guernsey? Um, well, you see, I mean, interestingly, we mentioned about commercial work. So my commercial work for clients now is not not um, not a huge amount of work. Um, I focus mainly on the education business. I still have several commercial clients that I've shot for for twenty years. That I continue to shoot for because they know me, I know them, we have good relationship with the art directors, um, etc., and, and some agencies that I shoot for as well. But I don't really go looking for new commercial work. So I'm not uh, I'm not a photographer that's out there putting my portfolio out there anymore like I used to 15, 20 years ago. Um, you know, I'm 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 happy with the commercial clients that I've got and whatever work. They need servicing, uh, and my main focus now is on visualeducation.com um, and delivering the amount of content that we have to manufacture for that business is quite significant. Um, so, so that's kind of where I am now. Um, and and yeah, I mean that's when when you go back to the pandemic, which obviously was a hit for many businesses and especially photographers and some friends of mine as well their work like yours just came to a complete standstill 
for me, uh, it, it came to a standstill on the commercial work, but I wasn't reliant on the commercial work to the same degree that it was my only uh, source of income. Visualeducation.com um, is, is, is our main business. And fortunately, that, that wasn't negatively affected by the pandemic because, as you just described, you literally absorbed everything you could on Netflix and you need something to do. So we found that actually we had more people coming to our platform because a lot of people were thinking, oh, I'm bored of Netflix. I want to better myself. I want to learn something new, learn some new skills. So when we come out the other side, I might be able to offer another repertoire of skills to my clients. So I um, I wouldn't say we were affected negatively. In fact, we may have actually have been affected slightly positively by the pandemic during that period, uh, not significantly, but it didn't affect us negatively, other than the fact it was more difficult to um, produce work when we were under lockdown. But luckily, we operate our business in a way that we produce lots of content in advance, and then it's in the editing stages ready for release later. And we had enough content um, in the back catalog, if you like, in the editing stages that we could cover our delivery requirements. <coughs> it's just that when we came out of the pandemic, we had to very rapidly get back into production to make sure that we were delivering enough content. Yeah, the pandemic did, uh, it did a number of positive um, things for me. I mean, one was, of course, you know, starting this podcast, which has been incredible fun. Um, but also, um, it, it sort of forced me to do other things because obviously, you know, my uh, speciality was photographing people before before the pandemic. Yeah. And that wasn't really possible during lockdowns and all the rest of it and all the rules and regulations around being close to people and indoors and all the rest of it. And so, so I had to take work that was outside of my wheelhouse, you know, product photography being one of them, actually. Right. Um, but, you know, where companies could just send me stuff or literally drop boxes of stuff off outside of my house and I'll go yeah. and pick it up and photograph the, the thing, the products. Um, so it kind of forced me into doing something that I, that I didn't really consider beforehand. But actually, with some of it, I quite enjoyed it. And, and it, has a, it has had a long-term impact on what I do now because... Really? Other than this podcast, of course, I also create uh, tutorial videos for a company called Platypod, um, and uh, and and there the experience that I've that I've gained from um, shooting products comes in really handy because, as listeners to this podcast will know, Platypod uh, creates um, tools to uh, to hold and 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 photograph small items like. You know, okay. clams and uh, goosenecks and all the rest of it. So, right. um, so that, all of that experience does come in handy now. But you know, he he never stopped learning. That's that's how I yeah. approach it. Yep. Anyway, talking about learning, I want to have a look at a few of your images and um, and basically get this sort of behind the scenes um, look sure. on them. No problem. So the first image I want to talk to you about is uh, is an image that I've. I've come across before, and you were kind enough to send me um, some excerpts of your portfolio uh, before we got to record the show. And I was really glad that uh, that you sent me this image because, again, this is something, uh, it's an image I've, I've come across before, and I've been fascinated by virtually every aspect of this image. And for those listeners on uh, on the audio version, on Apple Podcasts, uh, and so on, by the way, if you are listening to Apple Podcasts, give us a little star rating. That would be very much appreciated, as always. Um, but I'll just, I'll just uh, describe the image for you. 
if you are listening, if you are watching on YouTube, the image will fly in right meow. Anyway, so the it's an image of a uh, Remy Martin. I don't know how to pronounce it. Remy Martin. Yeah, um, cognac. Cognac. Yeah. Cognac bottle. It's a, it's a very interestingly shaped bottle. Um, the tones are probably red, um, red and oranges. Um, but what's really fascinating is is not only the lighting on the bottle, but everything to do with that image. We we have the bottle itself in the shot, and we have a cognac glass with uh, with some liquid cognac inside. Uh, and we also have a really interesting background, which is essentially almost like um, a, a fiery line of of red light, and I can see. Um, I can see some atmosphere in there as well, which which I'm I'm guessing is probably some form of atmosphere spray or and or smoke of of some description. Um, take us through that image and and uh, and and let us let us in on how you created that image. Sure. Um, okay. And also for for other viewers that can't see the or listeners that can't see the image. This is also on my commercial site, uh, carltaylor.com, so you can find it in the object section. Um, right, so this image, um, I actually shot this image because someone challenged me to say, I bet you can't shoot that, <laughs> because it's very technically challenging, this bottle, because of the shape of the bottle. The bottle has a uh, large... Um, cylindrical uh, cylindrical um sorry a, a, a rotating shape of petals if you like in the glass that rise in peaks and troughs peaks and troughs they refract the light very uniquely but it makes it an absolute lighting nightmare um from a photographer's point of view um but i always like challenge and i thought right what what how we and how are we going to do this because i went and looked at some of my favorite product photographer's work. I had a look at some of the guys I knew that had shot for Remy Martin. I'm not going to name names because the reason is that I've got a lot of respect for some of these photographers, but I was very disappointed with the images I saw that they shot of this product. I thought they didn't do a good enough job. And um, I saw that as a challenge. And I think I was chatting to a friend of mine and they said, well, go on then, see if you can see if you can do it. Um, so I said, okay. Uh, and as as with all my product work, I really focus on the product. I take a good look at the product in advance, get a feel for it, look at the the shape and the aesthetics and the dynamics and figure out what is beautiful about it, what's not so beautiful, what should you show, what shouldn't you show. And these this petal orientation of the carving in the glass on this bottle is very unique and, and very specific to this bottle. And I thought, well, we've got to we've got to show that we've got to show those undulations of the shape of the glass, etc. But also that you know that vivid gold red color of the liquid inside, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So then I you again applying physics in the lighting, calculating it all worked out. Um, you know how I was going to do it, and we filmed this live. Um, so this actually became a live show on visualeducation.com because a lot of the photography that we do, we produce classes and content regularly, but we also do live workshops. So people tune in live, watch and ask questions. And I did this one, I think as a live show. Um, and then, you know, I'd already done a rehearsal on it and figuring out how I was going to do it. And it involved several lights through a large um, soft scrim diffusion material to create the 
highlights that you see on the bottle, the white bits of lighting in the undulated curved parts. But then it required lighting from the back through the bottle as well and on the top edge. I think it took three lights through the diffusion material to pick up on the bottle. Um, but also ensuring that you've got enough light on the label and then mirrors for the neck of the bottle, etc., etc. And then I had the glass um, alongside, but I shot the glass as a sort of second shot. So although the glass was there in position, I did uh, I, I had an assistant move the glass to make the liquid move to create a swirl because I thought the liquid looked a bit stagnant and basic flat, and I wanted to create some extra dynamics to the shot by moving the liquid. Photographed it on gloss black acrylic, shiny black perspex to get the reflection. Uh, usually I darken my reflections down. I'm uh, just looking at the image here to remind myself. Um, usually darken the reflections down either in post or by using a neutral density graduated filter upside down. So most people use graduated filters for landscape photography to darken the sky. So sometimes in the studio, I use them upside down to darken the foreground. Um, and the, the background, which you picked up on, with the glowy, fiery mist, is actually a stock shot from Adobe Stock. Um, so my shot was just on the black acrylic with a black background, and I'd already sourced a background image that I wanted to use. And then it was a, that allowed me to show people how you can take a stock background and then take a really beautifully executed product shot and put it on it. As long as you know what you're going to shoot and what you're going to put it on and don't do it as an afterthought because then you can plan it, um, you know, more effectively. And I don't often do that. I don't, usually I do everything in camera in, 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 in one or two shots and comp it together. Um, but in this instance, I thought it would be a good example of how you, because it was a free stock shot for me from Adobe, because obviously when you're uh, paying your Adobe uh, monthly membership, you get the, some of the Adobe stock images for free. Um, so yeah, it was an example in, 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 in how to do that. But yeah, it was quite a complicated uh, product shot. Um, but yeah, I was very happy with the outcome. And um, as I said, it really came about because I didn't think some of my peers had done a good good enough job on it as such. Um, and I just wanted to see if it could be done. And in what way did the, the, the choice of the background image then inform the way that you shot the actual subject um, in terms of lighting? Did you make any particular specific uh, decisions because of based on the, uh, the background shot? Yeah, the background shot primarily, with the, the color was obviously important because you knew you needed a background with some sort of glow in it because you were going to put a glow through the bottle and a glow through the cognac in the glass. So that had to tie in that that glowing light from behind could be the cause or reason for the glow in the bottle. Because obviously bottles of whiskey and pints of beer and cider, they don't glow beautifully gold on their own. You know, when you pick up a bottle in the supermarket or wherever, it looks quite dull. It's the lighting that we have to put through it that brings it to life. And in this instance, I just wanted this sort of hint of fiery, molteny hotness and warmth to the shot, but without it being fire. And it was that stock shot that I thought, oh, that's got a really nice feeling to it. 
Um, and it's probably the sort of background you could create yourself as a piece of artwork in Photoshop with, a, you know, some, um, you know, diffusion and Gaussian blurs and some smoke tools and what have you. It's also something you could probably shoot with a smoke machine and some glowing light, but would be more involved. Um, but when I saw that stock shot, I thought, yeah, that is going to work perfectly as the, as the background to this image um, and what I want to do with the bottle and the glass. So in that shot, what you see, the bottle, the glass, and the base surface is the photograph that I shot. The glow behind is the stock shot. Okay, so I want to come to another uh, one of your images, um, which is um, an image of, it's a very blue, it's a, it's a blue-tinged image of a, a Tom Ford Black Orchid um, Eau de Toilette bottle. And if I yep. describe that shot, it's it's basically a bottle, so semi submerged in in water. Um, it's uh, there's some very beautiful swirls mm. in the in the water or liquid that it is that it's submerged in. Um, and the light again, the lighting on it is is really interesting. It's very subtle. There's a, there's a really uh, beautiful graduation on the label in particular. Um, mm. And of course, the 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 bottle itself is sort of textured. Um, yeah, and the way the the graduation falls across that textured surface is is, is really um, is very beautiful. But then, of course, you get these these swirls in the in the water together with the with the lighting on there, um, and and the highlights obviously in the um, in in the you know waves <laughs> yeah. swirls in the water um, again render really nicely. How did you how did you produce that shot? Um, again, it's quite a challenging one. Um, I, I always tend to sketch my images out first. So I draw them first in terms of making sure I'm happy with the compositional layout. Like what angle am I going to put the bottle? You know, what direction is it going to be facing? Where do I expect the lighting to be coming from? And I find the process of what pre-visualization and drawing it helps me tremendously then execute it because I've got kind of a plan. I don't go into these sort of images just willy-nilly by chance and hope for the best i've usually got an execution strategy based on uh, some sketches uh, and ideas and and stuff one of my um tools if you like homemade tools in the studio is um waterproof trays that we use for a lot of liquid shots this particular waterproof tray is a black acrylic tray that is about a meter square with about maybe um, three centimeters high walls around it. And I have different ones of different depths I use for different shots. Um, fill it with, filled it with water and then placed the Tom Ford um, perfume in the water, but put an acrylic block underneath one end just to elevate the top end of the Tom Ford up slightly so it didn't feel like it was drowning or falling under the water too much um, and that had to be glued in position and then the bottle was glued to that one side you know I, I don't just put it in and that's the, the shot so I put it in test the composition not even lighting it at this stage just working out am I happy with that angle am I happy with the way the bottle is facing the angle it's tilted the level of the water and then when I'm happy with those things, then I drain the water out and then I would re-glue the actual bottle that's going to be shot in position, then refill with water. So there's a lot of testing to get to where we want. 
And interestingly, it's little details, like I said to you, about the angle of the bottle. Because the very angle of the bottle leaning upwards slightly, these are always very important factors in product photography, especially at advertising level, because small differences such as if we had decided to let that bottle stay perfectly flat and horizontal it could have ended up looking like a life raft or a human floating on water or if you had it slightly negatively inclined where the head of the bottle the cap was going under more then it would have invoked a feeling that the bottle was drowning so that 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 invokes a negative connotation to the product so you have to be very careful even with products, because we tend to anthropomorphize everything onto objects as well. We give a sort of connection even to that bottle. We see it as a sort of almost human shape with shoulders and a neck and a head and things like that. And it's these little tiny tweaks in your product positioning that can either send the viewer off on a negative path or a positive path, depending on the, the the way you um, lay things out in a shot. So once I'd established how I wanted that bottle to sit, it's all glued carefully into position. I've already studied the bottle very carefully, looking at these beautiful ridges, these lines, these grooves on the bottle, which is obviously deep texture. How do you emulate deep texture? Well, you need a low glancing hard light, but then we have this high gloss Tom Ford label with the gold writing, which has to pop out of the shot and we have the liquid and that can't have hard low grazing light that means a softer broader light so we have a combination there of a hard grazing light creating the texture across the bowl which is coming in from the back top right which is grazing there you can actually see that the kind of right hand side shoulder of the bottle's got a little bit more light on it because that's where the light is impacting from and then there's a vertical diffusion material behind the tray rising up vertically because if we work on the angles of reflection and the physics of angles of incidence we can establish where the light would need to be to reflect off the water and reflect off the Tom Ford logo and the Tom Ford logo and the water are almost in identical planes of axis so we need a large glowing light there and that glowing light was filtered with blue gels and uh, interestingly, um, also some without the blue gel to give a more shimmering look to the light. And then basically an assistant is swirling their hands in the water to create the ripples. And then I'm capturing as many shots as I can as the water hits the bottle and I'm running a mixture on that particular shot of studio flash but with a tiny little bit of exposure time extra to create more of a shimmer in the water so that it has a feeling of motion in it more silkiness to it because otherwise it would have been too particularly sharp frozen um and and the problem is though that every shot that i took you then destroy the bottle with water droplets on it or where the wave swept over the bottle. So you then have to take 20 minutes with a kitchen towel and cotton buds drying the bottle. 
because it's easier to dry it than it is to put a new bottle in and re-glue and everything and cleaning the bottle and then air cleaning it and obviously the water settle and then you do it again and then you do it again and again and again and then only when I'm happy that the wave motion has worked and the shape of the waves and everything else um, then that's it but obviously I've already lit the, the the bottle lighting and everything and the texture has all been worked out by the previous shots and that's been done so that I know when I do the wave motion shots the bottle will be captured perfectly in the same shot from the textured lighting as well. And then there's a little bit of post-production on all these shots, of course, a little bit of color tweaking, a little bit of contrast here and there, just to draw the eye in a little bit to uh, specific places. Like we might have ramped up the, the gold color of the logo because it's a yellowy gold and it will pop out nicer from the blue. Um, you know, so... Yeah, I mean, I call it a, 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 a good mixture of sort of art and science, really. That's how I kind of like my work to be. Um, you know, there is a lot of science in photography, obviously in how images are captured, the physics of it all, the physics of how cameras work, time recording, all that sort of stuff. And then there is, of course, the art of the composition, the aesthetics and everything else. But as I said to you earlier... It goes beyond that. It goes back to the science of how we digest the image, how we perceive the image. The biological human response to the image goes back to the science again. So, and then you've got the science of the lighting, but there's also the art element of the lighting. And that's what I really have focused on in my work is delivering both of those to make the solution, you know, and, and, you know, some people find my work. Uh, some 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 people have said it's quite simple in the fact that the objects and the way I photograph things, it's usually very focused on one sort of item or one thing delivering one strong message. But then when you look at the layers of it a little bit more deeply, you see there's a, another level of application to the sort of science on the lighting and what makes the image hopefully more effective and more dynamic. Um, and that's what I like to bring to my work is this sort of what I call dynamic clarity um, to my images. I don't try to overcomplicate an image. Some fashion photographers do a brilliant job of having lots and lots of stuff in an image, but it still works spectacularly. I can't, well, I'm not saying I can't do that, but I don't generally do that. I prefer people to be able to absorb the message clearly and let the subliminal stuff do its work around it. It's like you mentioned, it's it's so multi-layered. Um, you know, in, in you're so multi-layered in your approach, and that's one of the things I've always loved about your photography and about you know about great um, advertising photography in general. It's all these these little layers that that like a you know like a like a puzzle make up the whole image. Like the one yeah. thing you know I noticed in this particular image, for example, is the, the longer exposure time on the on the water, and you know, to me, that always, you know, it, it always reflects sort of a, a sense of beauty, a lot of timeless beauty almost. And we see that in like fashion photography a lot of the time with like, um, you know, soft flowing fabrics, for example, dresses and so on and so forth. And, um, and it is the same thing is, is happening here. And it's, it's like you mentioned earlier, it's just that little, you know, it's, it's yet another little detail that will really bring across the overall kind of message in, in this image. You know, if, if that water had been 
shot at a much shorter exposure time, it would have appeared harder. It wouldn't have had the the soft, almost like feminine, you know. Um, yeah, it, it needed that silkiness to it. And that silkiness, although the water and the light on the water can do that, the ripples would have been too sharp and too hard had they have been just frozen at fast flash durations only. Um, and I think it's just through experience of working with a lot of liquids over the years um, in understanding, you know, that how liquids can look under different speeds and, and different combinations. So what you have here is you do have the very fast fat flash duration adding a freezing component to the water, but you also have an additional exposure of ambient light um, from the actual modeling lights on the studio lights with the blue gels, creating that slight silkiness to it as well. Now, to me, it's, it's always, you know, that's that's really the, the genius part of it is because, you know, one, one of my questions would have been like, okay, you know, is it a composite? Like, for instance, here, um, the way the, the bottle is lit versus the way yeah. the versus the way the uh, the labels that yeah, took it's not it's not a composite it was actually all shot together so the bottle the lighting on the bottle that textured lighting across the bottle is coming from a light in the top back right hand corner at a very low angle which was actually a small fresnel spotlight which gives me a lovely hard light very directional beam very controlled beam and that allowed me just to graze it over the top of the bottle and due to the angle of reflection from the water, that light was going to have no effect or not be visible on the water surface at all. So the lighting for the water surface is coming from much higher up vertically behind the bottle. Um, so I knew I could work with both at the same time without one, you know, impeding on the other. It's an, it's an absolutely, it's really a fascinating shot. So the way you've explained, you know, the lighting and the different, the different lighting concepts that go into it. It's, it's absolutely fascinating to me. Um, now, I want to come to another shot of yours, uh, another image, and that is um, that is basically a, I would say, a, a, a portrait image of a baby sitting in what appears to be a a, a, a mari, maritime landfill site. <laughs> for the yeah, you're, for yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, th this, is, this is actually an unusual style of image for me because this is actually goes to exactly what I said about some fashion photographers that put a huge amount of elements or items or content into the image, yet the, yet the fashion element still jumps out of the page. And I said, normally I like to work in a much more simplistic uh, method with just one item. This goes against the grain for me because I had to work here with a massive humongous mess of stuff but still bring the focus on the baby holding the hypodermic needle in the center of that shot. Now, if you see that image at a very large scale, you'd see that the baby is holding a syringe with a needle. And this image was shot for an um, anti-marine pollution campaign that we did as a charity project. Um, and the image was used widely around the world by various um, marine um, campaign, anti-pollution campaigns, um, you know, Friends of the Earth, that sort of stuff. And um, lots of scientists also used the image. And we made it freely available to anyone that wanted to use it in um, that context of protecting the marine environment and plastic pollution, particularly in the marine environment. 
um, we worked with a marine biologist who um, wanted to do something with us. And he said, look, I've got this huge amount of debris that my team of volunteers have collected from the shoreline that's been washed up in storms. And in particular, most of it is plastic pollution. And he kept it all. I think he kept it in his garage or his shed or his store, whatever. And there was bags. I mean, there was trucks full of the stuff. And um, I said, okay, well, yeah, maybe we can come up with a an idea of how we could use all this rubbish to create an interesting image. And there was a lot of talk um, in the media at the time about plastic pollution and what impact that might have on our health and how nanoplastics and all the plastics being broken down might potentially end up in our bloodstream or, you know, etc. And some of the debris that was washed up on the shore actually happened to be hypodermic needles. And I thought, obviously, there's a link between hypodermic needles and our bloodstream and etc. And then a baby representing future generations and what that might mean. So I devised a concept and I said to him, I, again, I sketched it out, drew the picture and I said, look, I think this could make a real powerful image is if we can sit a baby in all of this stuff representing our future and he's holding or so she's holding a hypodermic needle, which was part of the rubbish that's been washed up on the shoreline. And um, we can keep, create a very powerful image that almost has a sort of Renaissance painting feeling to it as well. So we set about doing it. It took over a week. We did two images. We did one also where the baby looked like it was the center of an eyeball made of plastic rubbish. And we made a big video about it. It went worldwide. It was on the news everywhere and, you know, very, very happy with it all. Um, but what was very difficult about that image was to light it in such a way where all of these other components in the shot and all the busyness didn't overpower the shot. We needed to feel you were still drawn into the baby and the hypodermic needle. And that took some very careful lighting and very careful composition. So I was constantly repositioning objects and going, no, that bit of rope isn't going to work there. It's going to have to go here because I need to lead them into the shot here. That toilet seat's got to go there. Um, and that fork um, has got to be pointing this way. You know, so it, it took a lot of compositional work to get it right. It was shot in my studio and the background image of the sky and what you can just see of the sea was another shot that I'd taken, a landscape shot that I'd taken a couple of years earlier. And that was used as the sort of background plate, if you like. But all of the rubbish and the baby and everything was all lit and taken in one shot in the studio. The baby did not have a needle, of course, in the uh, syringe. The baby had the syringe, the plastic part, which we'd sterilized. And then I just added the needle in post-production for that final impact. And we got a lot of pushback from people all around the world going, how could you, how dare you give a baby a needle and all? And, and we were like, oh, come on. But actually it worked really well for us because it created a huge amount of, you know, um, controversy. And that actually helped it spread the image everywhere. Uh, and we just let people think what they want, whatever they wanted to think, you know? I mean, interestingly, what you can't see in that shot is right in front of the baby's feet is a clear path of about 
30 centimeters wide going to the left of the shot and the mother is standing just out of shot on the left so she could have run in at any time straight to the baby to get to the baby and as I said the baby didn't ha have a needle in its hand anyway but we just left a clear path for the mother in case the baby fell over or something uh, like that and um, and yeah and, it, and it, it took a lot of work but I was very very pleased with the, the result of that shot especially because it's a little bit different to what I normally shoot you know took me out of my comfort zone a little bit that's 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 never a bad thing that's I think right. that's always that's a very useful thing because it allows you to grow as a as a photographer and as a creative you know that's the, that's yeah. the thing yeah. I just I love the way you've um you've uh, arranged the you know all the all the rubbish uh, to really lead into the baby the baby is pretty much more you know give or take more or less in the center of the image um, yeah. And uh, you know, it would have been it would have been an easy thing to just basically, you know, have all the the foreground level. But you, the way you've actually made it so scoop up on the sides really leads the eye into this yeah, ball. And, and absolutely. And this was one of the compositional challenges was to create almost like a valley that leads to the baby. And that you'll notice that I used mostly transparent bottles in the foreground that leads to the baby, so that there was no um distracting color as your entry towards the baby and then the shapes are deliberately there to balance so you've got a circular shape on the left and on the right the rope is highlighted sort of flowing into the shot to take you towards the baby objects in the bottom right and bottom left to sort of lock you into the shot almost like a framing process in the shot to frame you in um, although I must say, <clears throat> there is a considerable amount of color work in the post-production because I wanted it to have that sort of, um, you know, old masters painting color feeling to it uh, because a lot of the colors of that stuff, which is mostly fishing debris and, and stuff, a lot of it is very brightly colored. So I've actually toned down some of the yellows and the oranges and the greens to bring a more subtle um, pastelized color palette there so that the color didn't overwhelm your attention. Um, so that, that so there was a significant amount of post-production in the coloration of the image, not the content of the image, but certainly the coloration, a little bit of burn and dodging just to make your eye go to a particular point a little bit more easily. But in the main lighting, the baby, as you can see, is still the sort of brightest part of the image uh, and the highest contrast part of the image that you're drawn to. Exactly. Now, that brings me from from one maritime image to another one. <laughs> That's basically, it looks like you diving uh, with, with an uh, underwater camera rig. <laughs> what was good on there? Um, well, actually, that's just my um, profile. One of my profile images on my website uh, because as well as having just a normal boring headshot, I thought I might as well have something a little bit more interesting. Um, so my other passion is uh, underwater filmmaking and video. And um, I um, film shipwrecks underwater. As a matter of fact, I've just finished working on a documentary, um, which was a, a project I've been working on for a few years, where myself and a team of uh, divers and uh, various con contributors to the project uh, have been looking for uh, some missing shipwrecks and filming our discoveries. Um, and that is currently 
um, under consideration with um, some broadcasters at the moment, and hopefully, I'm, I'm hoping to see that air next year. So that's that's like an, another thing that I do is obviously um, more on the filmmaking side, um, documentary filmmaking. Um, but yeah, that's just a picture of me with my with my underwater filming rig. <laughs> Amazing. So I, I, I'm guessing the the English Channel is riddled with with shipwrecks. I would assume. Yeah, thousands, thousands of them, thousands of them from a huge period of time as well, going back. I mean, one of my friends, uh, Richard, who's who's been diving all his life, commercial diver, he discovered a shipwreck just outside our harbour that was nearly 2,000 years old, an old Roman wreck, which is now preserved in a um, museum. That that was the subject of a television documentary 20 years ago when he discovered it. Um, you know, some of my colleagues and fellow divers have discovered other shipwrecks, many of them from World War One, World War Two. Etc. Etc. But you know, there's a, a couple of millennia worth of shipwrecks lying around these waters and further out into the English Channel. So no, no shortage of exploration um, if you're willing to to get out there and, and do it. But obviously, the, the problems of it is it's a little bit more complicated when filming underwater because you've got the complexities of the filming and the videography, but also the diving and the getting there and the weather and planning and et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I've always been involved in diving since I was very young and had a passion for it. And um, when I used to explore these shipwrecks, being a photographer, I never felt that there was, that you're able to do them justice um, in stills alone because of often the turbidity and, 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 and the, the water not being clear. Um, but I felt the atmosphere of the scene was better captured in video. So I, so I only do, I do video underwater. I never do stills underwater. Um, I, ju I just do filming and video underwater. Um, but interestingly, I'm just going to give a name drop of a friend of mine, Alex Dawson. He's a Nikon ambassador. He is uh, an amazing underwater stills shipwreck photographer. Um, if you ever get a chance to look at his work, he might be a good guest for your podcast one day. He is someone who captures incredible still images of shipwrecks, but he usually does it in locations where the water visibility is much better. So it gives him the opportunity to light the shipwrecks and capture them in a certain way. But for me, I've always found video to be a better medium for, for my underwater stuff. It, it is pretty fascinating on, on quite a sort of a primal kind of level. I think when you see, you know, a shipwreck emerge out of the, out of the dark, and I'm thinking of like, yeah. you know, images that most people would have seen of like maybe the Titanic, uh, for example. Or recently I saw, um, I saw some images of the Endurance that were found um, not too yes, long ago. Yes, at the bottom of the and, lake, at the ice, yeah, under the ice. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's the, there's, there's something really, I don't know, there's something very primal you know, very primal sort of feeling yeah. that, that these kind of images evoke because it's, because they all goes it fascinating. It's it for me it delivers an emotional experience unlike any other because you see these huge objects that were man made that have been swallowed by the ocean, disappeared 
from time only to maybe then be discovered a hundred years or 200 years later. And it's like you're seeing something that no one else has seen. And that is amazing. You know, we, we've dived shipwrecks that literally no one else has seen. And you're, you're thinking of it and you're thinking it's a real privilege to, to be able to, to see it and witness it. And uh, of course, over time, they decay away to nothing you know, over hundreds of years, um, they'll eventually just turn to dust or metal from erosion, etc. So you've got this window of opportunity to view them, and we've got the technology to go down there and view them and film them. And it's always, yeah, it's, it's quite humbling, but it's quite scary in a, in a, in a, in a good way. I find it, it it quite. I don't. It's hard to describe. I wouldn't say scary once you know when you know what you're doing, but it's just overwhelming sometimes when you're alongside a big ship underwater and you're just thinking wow this is incredible you know the stuff yeah. that we build that then can just be destroyed and swallowed up and is sitting down there that no one on the surface knows is even there and it's a real window um through history it's almost like a time machine i recently a few months ago i had the opportunity to go to stockholm and i went my wife and i went to visit the vasa museum um, in stockholm which is a phenomenal uh, phenomenal 17th century shipwreck uh, one of the biggest battleships built at that time um unfortunately they made some mistakes in the construction so it sank in the harbor <laughs> i think it made oh, it, like half a mile or something out and that was it but and then it lay there in, in the mud, basically, for a few centuries. And um, only about maybe 30, 40 years ago or something, it was it was lifted out. It was found, and it was lifted out and then restored. And uh, and then um, they built a museum around it. And it's it's a real it's a real experience. First of all, this thing is huge. I mean, you see, I mean, photographs don't do it justice because when you actually walk in and you stand in front of this thing, you realize how living huge this thing actually is. And you yeah. kind of think, wow, I mean, even just, you know, even just the notion that this, this thing could have sailed. Yeah. You know, it was, it was originally built as a battleship to join the Prussian wars, I, I believe. Right. Um, and the, uh, the, the, the Swedish uh, king basically threw everything he had at, at this particular ship. And of course, then it just sank literally within sight. <laughs> oh, in view the harbor. Um, you know, and that, uh, but, but what I meant was, uh, that it was extremely well preserved and all the detail that you can still see is, is really very fascinating. It's, it's beautiful the way they've built the museum. You can you can walk around the whole ship on all different levels. So you can literally walk under the ship, but then you can also, you know, be above the ship and look down. You can see in inside of the ship and you can see all the like still a lot of the artwork is still visible. That's in and Stockholm. It's in is Stockholm, it is... yeah. I'll have yeah, it's to called check the Vast Museum. Yeah, I I, I... I'll um I'll have to look. I do go I do go um uh, to Sweden um um now and again. So uh, it's it's a really worthwhile um experience. I absolutely loved it. Um it's I, I went to um to Norway um a, a couple of months ago to teach a a workshop um based on uh, portrait photography. We basically shot Viking models in the in the Lofoten Islands in you know, in the authentic landscape um yeah. together with northern lights and the rest of it um and uh, so i thought earlier in the summer i thought like well if i go to scandinavia let's go to stockholm let's get a little bit of a viking experience going <laughs> we came across the Vasa museum which is phenomenal um right. really really beautiful um but yeah shipwrecks are it's amazing you know plus i always think 
the the history that is connected to some of those shipwrecks is just fascinating. You know, yes. um, especially the English Channel. I mean, everything from you know the the the, the Roman occupation of Britain to yep. uh, the Spanish Armada to both world yep. wars, the the the, the U-boat war in the Channel, and, and and everything else. It's just incredible. You know, one yep. of the one of the busiest shipping lanes in the world, and 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 all of these um all of these events that took place in that you know in, in that small bit of yeah. water really and that, that's that's, that's one of the unique things really about shipwrecks is that you know they 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 leave a, a sort of uh, a, a trail of clues of eras of time and history and 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 you can look at a particular shipwreck and then you can research it and discover why where what and as you say, covering such a large era, um, whereas if these things were on land, they usually get towed away or broken up or, or moved or, or whatever. Um, and and uh, yeah, I do find it fascinating, find the history of, of them fascinating as well. Okay, so lastly, I just want to um, just brush against one, one little... Uh... I'm going to say that. I'm going to cut this bit out because I can't, I can't think of my words. <laughs> well, what am I trying to say? Right. Um, so lastly, I just want to come to uh, to one subject that's, of course, been um, very, very now in a way, and that's that's AI. We talked about product photography, um, the amount of, of effort that goes into it, the amount of detail that goes into creating the lighting for, you know, for uh, product photography. And... And over the last year, we've seen the event of of AI. Now, I know that over the last five, ten years or something, um, CGI has made strides in in creating or simulating uh, what we call product photography. Yeah. But sure. with the with the advent of AI, that's that's sort of pushed that to an entirely new level. Would you agree? What's your what is your sort of sense when it comes to AI? Um. So I've been looking at AI quite closely and follow a few of the really interesting AI artists that are putting work out there and showing it. Some of them are not being completely straight up about it being AI, which I think is a little bit unfair. They're almost touting it as being photography without mentioning that it was AI created. Um, I think for photographers, the problem that's going to evolve with AI is not so much in product photography. I think it's going to be more in fashion photography. And the reason is an economic reason. Um, fashion shoots are notoriously expensive to conduct. You need the location, you need the model, you need the makeup, you need the hair, you need the crew. Uh, you've got to get them all to the location. Um, catering, everything else. So big fashion shoots on location cost a huge amount of money. But now with AI, you can create a fashion shoot in the bottom of the Grand Canyon or on the top of a mountain or in a desert or, you know, in a wherever. And you can do it all from the comfort of your laptop. And you can do it with a model of a particular look you can do it with a lighting of a particular photographer's style and you can do it even with a very specific dress or theme or whatever and you can do it all for nothing as well because there's no budget needed 
So you take a shoot that would have cost hundreds of thousands of dollars and you can bring it down to a zero budget. So that is obviously going to have an impact in the future. And then the AI um, creations on fashion imagery are the ones that I have seen that are the most effective images I've seen so far. They're the ones that look the most believable or um, the most inspiring um, because they feature these otherworldly landscapes and locations and models and beauty and everything else. But the unfortunate thing is that it's standing on the giant on the shoulders of giants. You know, it's looking at some of the best photographers from the last four or five decades, and you're actually able to feed those photographers' images as seed images into the AI and say, I want the model to look like this, or I want the lighting to look like this photographer's style of lighting and poses. And then I want the location to be this. And as long as you use your prompts correctly and you understand the language for the AI uh, model, you can generate these awe-inspiring images from nothing more than your computer. The problem with them is you can't generate exactly what you want because the even if you gave exactly the same that set of prompts 10 minutes later, the image that it would generate would be different because the AI models rely on scouring lots of sources of information and I guess that's constantly changing but it is able to deliver some stunning images and I think as it progresses you'll find uh, a fashion designer may have a new a new dress or a new whatever that they can photograph it on a mannequin feed that into the AI along with the style of the lighting of a certain photographer and such and such and you can generate these completely realistic looking images that have zero budget or you know they didn't physically cost anything uh you know in the same way a shoot would and that is obviously very detrimental to the industry because you're 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 affecting makeup artists models photographers stylists location crew all sorts of stuff there which i find particularly sad and 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 i also find it sad um, that, that, that in some way the images aren't real. Um, but I don't think we're going to be able to put that genie back in the bottle. That's, you know, that's out there now and it's already happening. When it comes to product photography, I don't think AI is specific enough to solve the requirements of most clients require, you know, needs, because if a client has got say a very specific electronics product or cosmetic product or pair of sunglasses or whatever, you can't tell the AI the exact dimensions of that product. Yeah, you can say to AI, and I've experimented with this, you know, give me a perfume bottle in a field of flowers or something and it can do it. But it's not necessarily the shape of the bottle you want or the brand of the bottle you want. And AI does never, AI never gives you brand names and things like that. So I, I don't think it's specific enough. I think actually CGI is probably a greater threat to product photography than AI is because in CGI, you can create exactly the model of the shape and the, the, the everything of the bottle. And, and, and we've got classes on our platform on CGI 
as well as combining CGI with photography and comparisons of CGI against photography. Now, CGI has already taken away car photography for the most part. Most car photography is CGI and the background image has been shot. So we'll probably see more of an effect on product photography in the future with CGI or elements of CGI. And I think we'll probably see more of an effect on fashion photography with AI. Um, and that's potentially where it's going to go. But then on the other hand, um, people do like working with people. Um, you know, there's always a case of people wanting to work with people um, and, and, and create with people and collaborate with people. So I don't think that's going to go away entirely. You know, if you go back a few hundred years, artists that were painting portraits of kings and queens and still life of bowls of fruit and stuff, as soon as photography came along in, you know, 200 years ago with um, Joseph Nieps, whatever, in his first photograph of a human having his shoes polished in Boulevard de Tomp in Paris, artists were probably pulling their hair out. I've got no hair left, but they were pulling their hair out going, oh my God, our, our industry is over. We're never going to paint another picture because photography has arrived. But yet we still have artists painting pictures today very successfully and art is still a huge pastime and hobby for many. And now we've got, we had photographers that were pulling their hair out when stock photography came along, stock libraries, and that, oh, I'm never going to get any work. It's all going to go to stock libraries. And then when Photoshop came along, oh, no, everyone's going to be able to do photography because they can now Photoshop it all. But it never removed photography entirely. Um, it just changed it a little bit. And I think what's going to happen is a similar thing with AI and CGI, it's not going to remove photography entirely. It's going to change things a little bit. We might see an amalgamation in some respects where part photography, part AI, part CGI, and that's, again, going back to our whole visual media and becoming a visual artist rather than being one particular genre, I think is important. Um, so, yeah, I don't think photography is going to go anywhere. And I also actually think that your more general commercial photography, the stuff that I used to shoot 20 years ago, you know, your more um, overall, broader um, hospitality, food, restaurant, local clients. I think that sort of photography won't go anywhere because AI is not going to be able to generate images that are very specific to a local business or a local restaurant or a particular tourism campaign or a particular set of business portraits. So in many ways, it might be the higher end photography that is affected more by AI than the lower end photography or the mid, mid end photography, if you see what I mean, because the higher end photography is very often, you know, big budgets, huge budgets, and clients are always concerned about budgets. And also, if you're doing a campaign for a specific pair of sunglasses or whatever that could be CGI'd, et cetera, et cetera, or, 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 or maybe that particular dress could be AI, but you won't get that in the more midstream to low-end commercial photography um, because the variables are too much, too great, 
um, because it it needs to be those staff that work at that company. It needs to be this restaurant's location or that hotel front and its surrounding areas and its bedrooms. And it, so, so, so I actually think that you know the general commercial photography world that I used to exist in twenty years ago is probably safer than the higher end in many ways. Fantastic. Uh, Carl, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. Thank you so much um, for being a guest on the Camera Shake podcast. Um, it's been an absolute education. Again, thank you so much for uh, coming on the show and talk to us. Okay, folks, that concludes our deep dive into the art and science of product photography with the incredible Carl Taylor. A massive thank you to Carl for sharing his insights. But as always, before we go, let me just recommend another episode that I think you'll like. Check out episode 146 with Lisa Carney. I'm sure you'll love it. If you enjoy our content, consider supporting us on buymeacoffee.com forward slash camera shake to help us continue creating and bringing you more exciting episodes. It really does mean the world to us. And for those of you who are listening to the audio version of this podcast, did you know that there's a fully fleshed video version over on YouTube with plenty of examples of our guest's photography in full Technicolor? Well, all you have to do is go over to YouTube, search for Camera Shake Podcast, and you'll be able to watch all past episodes on there. If you're already on YouTube, well, then drop us a comment, hit the like button, ring the bell, and share with your friends. Your engagement helps us reach a wider audience all over the world. Thank you for listening and watching, and I'll see you again next Thursday. Bye.